We all know the intention behind R&D tax incentives to drive real innovation leading to new inventions and breakthroughs that will drive the economy and benefit mankind. A noble aim, but is that really what they've led to? On today's episode of Fiona's R&D Tax Credit Podcast, we break down the different types of tax incentives being offered around the world and get frank with our guest, Vice President of Global Projects at the Tax Foundation, Daniel Bunn, about whether or not they're actually leading to the increased R&D investment they're intended to produce. I'm going to send things over to Cross Border Solutions Director of R&D Tax Incentives, Rahim Walji, to lead our discussion and welcome our guest. Rahim, you have the floor. Thanks, Matthew. And thank you very much, Daniel, for joining us today on Fiona's R&D Tax Credit Podcast. Thank you. If you would, it would be great if you could offer just a bit of an introduction and some background about yourself and your current role. My name is Daniel Bunn. I work at the Tax Foundation, which is a tax policy think tank based in Washington, D.C. We've been around since 1937, focused mainly on U.S. federal tax policy. But over the years, we've expanded our scope to not just cover U.S. federal tax policy, but state tax policy and international tax policy. And I joined Tax Foundation a few years ago to run our research program on international tax policy. And about half my role is comparing different countries' tax systems, and the other half is looking at multilateral conversations around tax policy changes. Wow, that sounds very, very interesting. Thank you for that background. I want to dive right into this. So let's start by talking about different kinds of tax incentives, right? That's the topic for today, but it would be helpful if you could give both myself and our audience an overview of the different kinds of tax incentives that exist today. Yeah, so when it comes to innovation and the type of spending and investment that companies do in R&D, there's essentially two kind of categories that we try to lump things into. You can do cost-based incentives, where if a company is investing in R&D or building a new fancy lab, that you might be able to receive a special deduction for that or a tax credit for that. And then there are profit-based incentives, where if you design something that's patentable or you have this new software, that you might be able to receive special tax treatment on the profits from that piece of intangible property. And those two buckets are kind of roughly defined because countries have a lot of unique approaches to incentivizing investment in R&D. You know, on the one hand, with cost-based measures, some countries provide accelerated depreciation for investments in things like high-tech labs or things connected to sometimes government-sponsored research facilities and the activities that companies partner with the governments on. And some of those things are you know, pretty sizable where you might be able to deduct 300% of your costs or you might get a significant refundable tax credit for those investments. And then on the other hand, with the profit-based measures, a lot of these are patent boxes. It's a, become a relatively familiar tax tool around the world in recent years, where if you have your IP in a certain jurisdiction and you have profits associated with that IP, then you get it taxed at a lower rate, a lot of times 50% or sometimes even less than the standard statutory tax rate. But again, countries differ on what qualifies for 
R&D expenses, what qualifies for IP that benefits from the lower patent box rates. And rules are pretty consistently changing with new countries designing new tools or introducing them for the first time. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting area of policy. Absolutely. It definitely sounds like it. You know, they say nothing certain but death and taxes, but they don't tell you how tax regulations keep changing all the time, right? And so to your point, those patent boxes, right, those rules are always changing in addition to, you know, various credits and and deductions. And there's also even some, some direct, you know, government assistance that's given to companies as well. Could you just touch briefly on some of the government assistance? You know, I know there's some loans and different types of funding. Could you just touch briefly on that? Yeah, exactly. So governments around the world sometimes design, you know, the incentives into their tax systems, but other governments may have a different approach. I I think Sweden stands out here without having some of these R&D tax incentives, but they do a lot of direct investment in R&D that, you know, comes out of the public budget for things that they work with private businesses on. And, you know, they foster innovation and innovation culture through government funding directly rather than through the tax code. Thank you very much for that. So to recap, we have patent boxes that help offset tax rates and reduce rates for companies that are patenting different intangible assets. We have R&D tax credits. We have deductions. We have this direct government assistance through loans and other types of funding. So in terms of the different kinds of incentives, there are different ways in which R&D credits specifically are applied for, and, and it can differ from country to country. Could you offer us some examples of countries and how they differ between their region's R&D credit process? So I think the biggest difference among countries that have R&D credits is the R&D credits that apply to overall R&D spending. So let's say in 2021, you're going to spend a million dollars on R&D and there's a 10% tax credit for R&D spending that you'd automatically get that 10% applied to the full million. Then there are a few countries, as far as my research has shown, there are five countries among the OECD countries, the 37 OECD countries, that only apply R&D tax benefits to what are referred to as incremental expenses. So instead of that full million of R&D expenses qualifying for a 10% credit, maybe, you know, last year I spent 90 million and this year I'm spending 100 million and you only get that extra 10 that could qualify for the R&D credit. And the design is meant to incentivize businesses to continually increase their R&D spending as opposed to always getting credit for spending the same amount year after year. But this can be pretty tough to keep track of. In fact, the U.S. rules for companies that existed at the time are based relative to a historic period in the 80s. So you have to keep track of those records and what you were spending over time to be able to say, oh, no, this is the incremental amount of R&D that is now eligible for the credit. But like I said, that's five out of the 37 OECD countries that approach it this way. And it's much more common to say, hey, we're giving credit for the full amount. Now, in that approach where you're giving credit for full amount, there's a significant windfall to the R&D spending that companies would be spending anyways. Companies oftentimes are in a rather competitive environment when it comes to innovation. So they're already going to be investing in R&D, trying to design new products and 
reach new customers and things like that. So when you're providing credit for expenses that they were already going to do anyways, you're not really incentivizing new activity. In fact, you're giving them essentially a tax windfall. Absolutely. There's definitely an opportunity here to contrast, right? So these five countries that you mentioned with this incremental expense, right? You have to look at a base period, right? Thankfully, in the U.S., they came out with the alternative simplified, so you don't always have to go back to the 80s or the 90s exactly, exactly. to, to get it done. But, right. but fortunately, the U.S. has done that. But no, you know, in, in Canada, you get a, a full expense in the year of the deduction. You, in Australia, you get a volume-based refundable tax credit if you're, if you're a smaller company or a non-refundable tax credit if you're a larger company, right? And they're the way Australia is set up is they're one of the most generous out of the OECD countries with a credit itself, right? Right. And their credit is 43.5% for R&D spending. And it's a refundable credit for firms with less than 20 million, and this is Australian dollars, 20 million in total revenue. But if you're above that 20 million in Australian dollars total revenue threshold, you still could be eligible for a 38.5% non-refundable credit. And that's limited to the first 100 million of eligible R&D spending, but still that's a pretty hefty credit when a lot of other countries are, you know, you might get a credit in the teens or something like that. Absolutely. And I want to, just for our audience, I want to highlight, you know, the difference because I think a lot of folks are tax savvy in our audience, but you know, there's a, there's a difference between a tax refund and a refundable credit, right? So when we say refundable credits, we are referring to the fact that your tax liability in that year doesn't have an impact or a bearing on whether you can receive the benefit of the credit, correct? Yeah, exactly. So a tax refund means that you had tax withholding that exceeded your tax liability. So when you file your tax return, you get the difference between your withholding and your tax liability. But the refundable credit says that you get money back even past your tax liability. So if your tax liability is $100 and you have a refundable credit for $120, you get that extra 20 back. Uh, It zeroes out your tax liability and you get an extra $20 back. Absolutely. And so that's what I think you see, you know, with Australia's benefit, the reason it's the most generous is number one, refundable tax credit, right? Which is a huge, huge advantage for these smaller, you know, less than 20 million in revenue Australian companies. But then I think you also see that it's volume-based, right? So they're incentivizing current R&D and new R&D as opposed to just continuous R&D, right? Right, right, exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about a couple of recent studies and some recent research that's been performed. So I'm just going to kind of set the stage here. So there's an economist, Bodo Knoll, and and some co-authors that did some research that determined companies that increase R&D activity in response to local incentives or, or an incentive in one country actually offset that activity with reductions in other countries by affiliates of their same multinational organization, if you will. It says globally, they found that forms hardly respond to changed R&D tax incentives. But then similarly, there's another economist, Rachel Griffith, and some of her co-authors that found that patent boxes lead to companies to shift patents to jurisdictions with lower tax rates. What, you know, has the OECD, which you know, sort of looks at all of these different incentives, what have they done to remedy the potential for base erosion and profit shifting when it comes to these tax credits in order to ensure these incentives genuinely lead to increased innovation? Well, let me talk about what they've done. And I, I'm not certain I would say that they have changed the rules so there's 
surely increasing innovation. But yeah, these policies can work as kind of beggar thy neighbor policies, where if one country has a really generous R&D tax credit regime or a patent box, and it's next door to other countries that don't have those things, then companies could shift their operations across borders and say, hey, we're going to do our R&D in the country with the R&D credit, and we're going to have our patents in the country with the patent box. That's not necessarily increasing overall innovation. It's just moving it around from one country to another. And that gets kind of back to the windfall effect I was talking about earlier. These companies are already going to be investing a lot in innovation and licensing their inventions in different ways. And simply just being able to move things around to be able to benefit from the best tax regime isn't really increasing overall innovation. But you want to avoid this sort of beggar thy neighbor activity, right? It's it's very much of a, well, is there is there a way that we can, you know, kind of minimize the amount that tax comes into play in these location decisions? And that's where the OECD conversation kind of came in. Almost a decade and a half of work on things like harmful tax practices and whether different patent box regimes in particular were designed in a way that harms another country's tax base by allowing companies to shift across borders to take advantage of lower rates. But since then, since about 2013 and onward, and a lot of changes since 2015, a lot of countries have adopted what's called the modified nexus approach for IP regimes. And what this essentially means is that instead of just moving your patent around, like the piece of paper around from jurisdiction to jurisdiction to benefit from different patent box rates, you have to actually have your R&D activities and some of the management functions and potentially other risk sharing type of arrangements in a multinational all in the same jurisdiction to be able to say, hey, we're actually here, we're doing the work here, We've got the innovation team here, the management team, it's all in the same location. Therefore, we should get benefits from the IP regime. Now, in some ways, that makes it better. That way, you're not saying you just get to move your pieces of paper around or your research team around to be able to benefit from tax policy. But in some ways, it makes it a little bit worse. So you have to move everything to uh, one location in order to benefit, which means that you may have had activities in higher tax jurisdictions that no longer make sense because in order to benefit from the lower tax regime, you have to move more things to the lower tax regime. Uh, So the evidence isn't really quite settled on this because a lot of these things are new, but as countries continue to talk about things like changes to national or global tax rules, you know, this is part of the process where we're talking about the global minimum tax and and things that the Biden administration has brought out even in the last week or two. You get more and more to this question of, okay, well, how do we change rules so that we're not making tax such a significant piece of the puzzle for, you know, being able to move this mobile income around? Absolutely right. All you do is end up encouraging a lot of paperwork and shifting things around as opposed to real investments within those jurisdictional borders, if you will. Right, right. And that's that's one of the things that I think, you know, to bring it from a U.S. perspective, the 2017 tax law brought in kind of a weird version of a IP regime for the U.S. with foreign derived intangible income taxed at a rate of 13 and an eighth you know, lower than the 21% corporate rate. And some companies responded to that, plus the tax on global intangible low tax income, guilty, 
they respond to these incentives by saying, oh, maybe we don't need our tax haven structure anymore. Maybe it makes sense to bring our IP back to the US where we also have our R&D facilities and our management functions and things like that. And then if the rules change again, well, maybe it makes the sense to redo all the paperwork and ship things elsewhere. It's trying to get to a new equilibrium where it doesn't have all this whiplash effects of when countries change their laws for these really mobile profits to be able to be settled in a relatively reasonable, I guess, allocation around the world. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Daniel, in, in terms of patents, why do you have to patent your R&D discovery to get the benefit? For example, some pharmaceutical companies aren't patenting their COVID vaccine formulas. Shouldn't they still get the benefit of such innovative discoveries? That's a great question. It's interesting when looking at the way different countries define things, whether for R&D credits or for patents, that essentially countries are setting up a bunch of hoops that companies have to jump through in order to prove that they're actually investing in innovative things and that their products are actually valuable. And if, as you're saying, like a company creates something that's incredibly valuable and incredibly innovative, not valuable just to the company, but to, you know, potentially the world, then why should the tax code treat that product and profits from that product differently just because it's not getting some sort of public license or public approval? And one theoretical point to that is to make sure that the things that are getting the tax benefits, especially on the IP side of things, is to make sure that the innovation is not just for private use and private benefit, that there is actually innovation and it's adding to the, I guess, the scientific literature and the scientific community that these things are published and defensible, that they're unique products. And other people can look at those patents and look at what's gone into those and think of how you can design something new in addition to what's been designed. So that's that's one kind of, I'd say, reason for it. I don't think it's a really strong one, but that that's one reason. Absolutely. You know, it brings to mind the difference between sort of open source information versus all this private, you know, patented information. And, you know, there's innovation that goes into both, of course, but sometimes to your point, you know, these patents are done more to make this technology or this knowledge privatized and, and commercialized as opposed to maybe, you know, to your point, pushing the, the boundaries of, of science or, or knowledge or technology forward. Yeah, and I think you see that in some of the innovation literature. A lot of recent research has shown that companies do innovate for their private benefit, which is fine. They're, you know, welcome to do that. That's, that's something that their shareholders and their customers, I'm sure, appreciate. But that's different than kind of the public interest 
of pushing forward the scientific frontier and creating innovations that are you know beneficial to everyone and other companies. And that's the the kind of interesting joint project of government funded or taxpayer funded R&D spending. It's you know the idea of well, you know maybe we can create some things that are valuable innovations for the next round of global development. The best way to do that is to have things that could be replicated and improved rapidly and in order to have it replicated and improved rapidly, then it needs to be kind of in the in the public sphere. You know, in speaking about how innovation whether we talk about open source available information or patented information, there are some countries that exist that don't really have any special incentives for R&D, right? I think earlier you had mentioned Sweden and other countries is Estonia, but surely these countries value or care about innovation fueling their economies just as much as, as other countries do. What's different about you know, for example, Sweden and Estonia's approaches, and and are those approaches working for them? The main difference, I would say, is in the thinking about what the role of tax policy is. As an economist, I know that taxes distort investment decisions, and they distort them, you know, whether you have a, you know, a high tax on something and you get less of it, or you have a low tax rate or a refundable credit for something and you get more of it. Those are decisions that are influenced by the tax code. And some countries say, no, we don't want to influence decisions through the tax code. In fact, we think that's a bad thing for the government to decide how best to influence business decisions and use the tax code as kind of a cudgel in doing that. And this is particularly true of Estonia. They wanted to, back in the late 90s, they wanted to shift to a truly investment neutral tax system. And they have what economists like to call a a cash flow tax. If you're a business and you're reinvesting in your business, those profits that you're reinvesting in your business go untaxed until there's a dividend out to your shareholders. And that means that there is no tax bias on those reinvestment decisions and that the only tax impact is when the profits are distributed to shareholders, which makes it essentially overall the Estonian system is like a multi-layered consumption tax, in fact. But the role of that tax system in supporting innovation by not providing incentives or distortions is pretty important. It makes it easier to do business in Estonia because it's a simpler tax code. It's a simpler way of going about and making investment decisions and expansion decisions. But it doesn't have those things like massive tax credits for research and development or a patent box. I mean, the the tax rate on distributed profits in Estonia is 20%, so much higher than some of the patent box rates we see around the world in the low teens or or single digits. And the Swedish approach is similar to that. It's not as, I'd say, as extreme in the simplified approach as Estonia, but Sweden doesn't have these R&D or patent box regimes. And Sweden has historically been a really innovative country, and it ranks highly and the amount of R&D spending per capita among EU countries. And that's, again, back to what we were talking about earlier, as far as government-directed R&D spending, government support of the R&D sector, direct spending support or loans. That's more common in, in Sweden. It's not, not as common in Estonia, but these are different approaches to thinking through what the role of the tax system is. And if the role of the tax system is simply to raise revenue rather than create distortions or incentives, then you end up with something that looks closer to Sweden and Estonia than you might with the Australian example that we were talking about earlier. 
Wow, that's very, very interesting. Thank you for such a detailed overview of, of both those different regimes that are in place for Sweden and, and you know, sort of the relatively simple policies that exist in Estonia. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. For countries where tax policies aren't as simple as Estonia's, you know, ensuring compliance tends to be a very large hindrance to claiming, you know, R&D tax subsidies that, that many companies are qualified for. What kind of resources are needed to claim these R&D credits, whether they ultimately are, are put to real innovation or not? That's a great question. And this was when I was writing on this earlier this year, I found very few resources that really quantified the amount of resources that are needed to qualify or to track expenses and to get approval for these things. I found plenty of anecdotal evidence. You talk to business professionals, CPAs, people, whether in the US or around the world who've worked with companies to help them qualify for either R&D credits or patent boxes. And it's clearly a lot of work, but I haven't seen something that really defines it narrowly. But I think it's important to say that in the research that looks at who benefits from these credit regimes and these patent box regimes, as far as the, what companies claim these credits, what size they are, what sectors they're in, it's pretty clear that it makes, number one, it makes sense for these companies to claim that, but it, it's pretty clear that very large and very innovative companies are the ones that are claiming these things. So if you have a business model centered around a successful business model, in, implying the size of the company or the profitability of the company, a successful model that's built around constant innovation, you're going to invest in complying with the requirements for R&D credits and the requirements for qualifying for patent boxes and things like that. It, you know, It's to your benefit, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the intended effect from the policy. In fact, it shows that maybe the policy isn't quite tailored right if only large, if mainly large or really profitable businesses are the ones qualifying for these things. And maybe there are, you know, essentially regulatory barriers to entry for other businesses. And that's not saying that other businesses aren't innovating, that they aren't patenting things or they aren't investing in R&D. It just means that they might have more costs for complying with those rules than say a large multinational that is well situated to get the right advice and pay for the right advice for those things. You know, I think in the UK, some of the, the research shows, you know, between 2017 and 2018, large companies claimed 90% of the tax relief that was available, right? And I think even in my history, 
I see when we talk to companies that need some help looking at R&D credits in their jurisdictions, it's the larger companies that have, you know, entire tax teams dedicated to analyzing this information, you know, looking at it from a tax perspective, coordinating with technical contacts internally, or some of the smaller organizations, you know, the ones that more often than not need this infusion of incentives to help keep their businesses, not just growing, but afloat sometimes. That's why we offer artificial intelligence and software tools to help them better document. Because to your point, sometimes there is a high bar from a regulatory standpoint and a compliance standpoint to be able to claim some of these benefits that you're right. It it sometimes does prevent those who really need it uh, from getting to it. Yeah, exactly. And this is why I make a point in some of my research that it's important for tax policy to think through like, well, are we actually hitting the target that we want to hit? You know, is it is it possible that, you know, maybe maybe it's fine that just large companies get these credits and, and other incentives, but is that truly what you want? Is that, do you want large companies to dedicate significant resources in addition to the resources they're committing to the innovative activities to commit resources to complying with the tax rules that allow them to benefit more from the innovative activities. And it it gets to my mind of, you know, economists like to talk about uh, deadweight loss of tax policy. You know, the higher your marginal rate, the higher the deadweight loss, but also the more complicated your tax code, there's some deadweight loss that comes with the complexity of complying with different rules, even if the intention is to provide a benefit for certain activities. Definitely. You know, one of the things that comes to my mind was there's some proposals in Congress, right, to double the R&D tax credit. And one of the things that got pointed out was a single year credit for alternative simplified, right, which was at 6% of your current year expenses if you if you don't have prior years, right, that base period we were talking about. And then the doubling, it doubles to 14%. And the question that came to my mind was, how did we get from 6 to 14 when it's doubling? But when you read the language behind the legislation, it actually turns out that originally the credit was supposed to be 7%. And so you, you, the complexity that you're talking about, right, and making all these changes and, and how it impacts other provisions within the tax code, you can see how even in the actual functional number that went through, they ended up with a wrong number than what was actually being considered, right? So I, I think your point is, is very, very appropriate. That's a great story. I had not heard about that, but uh, yeah, it, it makes exactly that point. So I'm going to sort of put you on the spot here, right? In the end, out of, out of the three incentives that we've sort of talked about today, I know we've, we've really focused more on the credits and the, and the patent boxes, but of course the, the tax deductions do exist. Which of the three actually leads to real innovation and increased investment in, in R&D? Or, or maybe, it's, you know, is it clear which, which of these three does? Or, or if not, is it something like Estonia or, or, or the Swedish model that we should be looking at? What are your thoughts there? So I'm going to do the economist thing and say conditional on having an R&D preference among the countries that have decided that they're going to have a preference for R&D in the tax code. I would say the R&D tax credit is probably the most powerful. The thing is, though, you have to think through all the things that we've also talked about here with the complexity and the compliance and the differences between countries. But again, if you've already decided that you're going to have tax incentives for research and development, the tax credit is probably the best way to go. Beyond that, you know, I think I would get back to saying, let's have a relatively neutral system otherwise. And, you know, maybe there's a mix of, you know, direct government funded government projects that are connected to R&D and government public private partnership 
kind of direct funding of, of R&D. And there are plenty of other tools that policymakers can lean on for enhanced innovation. And, you know, that's, that's with the university system, with making sure that STEM degrees are important, that you've got a competitive environment so companies feel like they have to continue to innovate, that you've got really good intellectual property laws, skilled immigration, all of these things fit in there. And they're beyond the tax question. But again, going back, if you have a tax incentive in mind, the R&D tax credit is more valuable than I would say a patent box. And the, the deductions can be, can be valuable. But I, I'll say this for the U.S. system, at the end of this year, the U.S. is going to go from expensing of R&D where you, you know, spend your money on R&D and you get to write that off in the same year, in addition to potentially qualifying for a credit to amortizing R&D expenses. So where you have to capitalize it and deduct it over a few few years. And that actually is running the opposite direction of these incentives. In the mix of things, again, R&D credits would be be more valuable, but it's, it's, it's a whole suite of policies if you're looking at innovation policy in general. Couldn't agree more. The amortization piece that, that's coming up, at, you know, that's sunsetting at the end of this year and, and going to start the five-year amortization is definitely on, on a lot of people's minds. And you know, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't mind that uh, volume-based credit, you know, year by year as well, instead of the uh, the incremental benefit that has to be calculated every time. So, no, thank you for your opinion on that. Really, really appreciate you know the benefit of your expertise and your thought process. Yeah, happy to do so. And I think again, and this you know is one of those things where it's just a challenging thing to think about what innovation means and how best to attack it. Because again, you might be creating a tax windfall for somebody who was going to, you know, invent that new thing anyways, being able to say, oh, you know, for the public good, we think the windfall is fine as long as we're incentivizing some incremental R&D in the context of a whole suite of policies that could support innovation. Daniel, we see a lot of buzzwords, a lot of different terminology that's used, technological breakthroughs, innovation. What does all of this really mean? And is it different country by country? Yeah, I think one thing that's in, you know, policymakers' minds when they're adopting these things is that, you know, you would be able to, whether whether you're thinking, you know, over the past thousand years and thinking of, you know, oh man, we're going to invent the windmill and, you know, spur innovation, or we're going to invent the printing press, invent the internet, or we're going to invent an mRNA vaccine. Like those are the things that are in policymakers' minds when they're thinking about incentivizing research and development, that huge breakthrough that changes history, that changes everyone's way of life. But honestly, you know, a lot of innovation may seem relatively boring. One of the things that a lot of companies did over the last year, and I don't know how many of them will claim credits for these, but they had to research and innovate maybe changing their brewery or their still into something that could make hand sanitizer rather than something that people could enjoy as an alcoholic beverage. Those kind of things are are smaller. Those are their adjustments, their improvements, but they're not the real breakthroughs, but they still could you know, qualify for various R&D type incentives because they are spending money on doing new things and doing things that they otherwise wouldn't have done as far as innovating and looking at, you know, different opportunities in the market. Now, when it comes to, I think it's easier to distinguish between like what's eligible and what's not in the realm of patent boxes, because some countries provide patent box treatment for strictly patents, 
These are recognizable international patent registries where the patent has to be approved and it's there. Some of them provide for software. Some of them provide for patent software and other intellectual property. And again, all of these things could lead to or help businesses qualify for better tax treatment on those technological breakthroughs. But a lot of times those breakthroughs are not things that policy has a lot of influence over or they take a lot of time and then there's a burst of innovation. I think with policymakers that might be disappointed with you know relatively boring or not as impactful innovations over you know shorter period of time, it, you know they may see this as, okay, well, maybe we're investing for the long run to be able to continue to have an innovative culture an innovative climate so that when it comes to the big breakthrough, we are already thinking towards the next big thing or the next opportunity or how to improve somebody else's invention and things like that. So you're not always going to get the big technological breakthrough with these policies, but I think policymakers do have in mind those big technological breakthroughs and maybe the support for an ongoing kind of culture of innovation. Yeah, I think the, you know, to your point, a lot of these policymakers are thinking about ways to further ways to put their country on the map, right? We we came up with this huge breakthrough or this particular technology or this particular chemical formula or things of that nature. But I would agree with you. But then again, I'm not so against hand sanitizer that smells like bourbon or tequila, though. So Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, you know, innovation looks different to different people. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing, software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp welcome back we want to thank daniel and raheem for being with us today in a very insightful discussion we want to thank everyone at home for joining us don't forget to check out the entire suite of cross-border solutions tax podcasts on apple podcasts and spotify this podcast is worth two one-fifths of a CPE credit. To get your credits, email the Fiona Show at xps.ai. This podcast was hosted by Matthew DeMello, edited and produced by Matthew DeMello and Andrew O'Donnell. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next time.